Thank you so much for listening to Out of the Box Podcast, guys. I really would love if you could show your support and help us grow. Download the Fountain app on iOS or Android and follow us Out of the Box Podcast and start listening. You can share your thoughts on the episode by sending a boost. It's a little payment with a message and see what other listeners have to say or create clips of your favorite moments of silly stuff I'm saying or like really cool guests. Getting started is so easy. You can get your Fountain wallet, add some money with a bank card. Oh, and you can earn money too by just listening on the Fountain app. It's a no-brainer. Visit fountain.fm to learn more. to out of the box podcast with rosie tran guys we're now on anchor go on anchor and it's the best way to listen to the podcast because you can go on and support us we have all sorts of ways that we can earn some revenue to keep the podcast going and as always we're on soundcloud and stitcher the best way to support the podcast is to leave a positive review we love positive reviews if you hate the podcast, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a negative review. It doesn't matter. The more reviews you leave, the more we get discovered by new listeners. So that's our favorite thing in the world to do. I'm here with a very special author, Julie Peters. She wrote a book called Want, Eight Steps to Recovering Desire, Passion, and Pleasure After Sexual Assault. Julie, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to have you. And I did read the book. Um, and... <sighs> It's very serious, but it's very fun. And there's like, it's not just a recovery from sexual assault book. It's like, there's like tips on eating. There's like tips on <laughs> yeah, breathing. There's, there's there. tips on masturbation. <laughs> it's like, I was like, wow, this is like a holistic self-help book. I feel like um, even though you're talking about recovery from sexual assault, um, it's more like a holistic whole life book. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, when I wrote it, I really wanted to kind of move away from um, the discussion that we have been having generally about um, how, you know, we, we do talk about sexual assault a lot in our culture, but it's from this perspective of like, you know, sexual assault is devastating. Let's focus on, um, you know, the, the consequences and all the horrible things about it. And that's an important conversation for sure. But I really in this book wanted to talk about what happens after, like what is life like, you know, on the other side of that. Yes, that's true. And so full disclosure for the listeners who haven't um, listened to some of my past episodes regarding sexual assault. I am a sexual assault survivor as well. Um, I'm a victim of assault um, when I was in college. And what I really love about your book is that, like you said, it's not, I feel like part of the conversation is a little bit re-victimization, whereas you're talking more about empowerment, finding your voice, finding your sexuality, feeling your feelings, moving past, just this happened to me, I'm traumatized. And I think that that is very empowering and also a much needed conversation because I do agree with you that a lot of the conversation, which is amazing because women have been silenced for so long, is a little bit heavy victim focused. And I don't want to say in a bad way, but I guess, like you said, maybe not as empowering as the conversation could be, even though for some women, just speaking up is empowering. And you mentioned that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there are so many ways to heal, you know, and there are so many ways to kind of focus on. Um, you know, getting back to whatever your definition of health and wholeness is after an assault. But I think the other thing, too, that we need to start taking into account around these conversations is that, 
you know, sexual assault is incredibly common. It's just happened to so many of us. Um, and even if it wasn't necessarily um, like a specific violent assault, which is what we often think of as that being, you know, a lot of women have had experiences of being sexually harassed at work or mm. being catcalled on the street or just kind of feeling generally victimized by this culture. Um, well, let's talk about that, because that is something that you mentioned in the book that I really appreciated, is you're talking about women being victimized, but you also mentioned male victims. Yeah, absolutely. And that's very, very important, because, you know, I think some of it came to light with the Catholic priest scandals and other things like that, but a lot of males are victimized. One in six. There's, there's yeah. males that are victimized by other men, and also males that are victimized by women. Mm -hmm. You know, I know there's a lot of jokes about uh, teachers... Uh, molesting boys and you know I, I've heard that a lot. oh why were they complaining about it you know they're getting some and that's part of the patriarchy too saying that y you know s unwanted consent a, a male getting unwanted consent from a woman that should be like his sexual fantasy but you can still be assaulted as a male yeah absolutely and in the book I talk about um, an episode of friends which is a show that you know a lot of people in this generation watched when they were kind of in that um, stage like for myself you know I, I think I was 10 years old or something when the show started and so it was those formative years where I was kind of watching that and I talk about a fair amount of pop culture in the book because I think like the movies and tv shows that we watch kind of teaches us how to be people it teaches us what our culture is um, and so there's an episode where um, uh, Chandler on Friends and his wife Monica um, are trying to have a baby and Monica basically tricks him into having sex um, and it's supposed to be funny, you know, um, but it isn't funny for him. And like he feels really victimized and he feels very manipulated and it wasn't like a consensual sex experience. And so he's kind of struggling with that throughout the whole episode. And he's really the butt of the jokes. Everyone is kind of making fun of him for for being know, assaulted, for being assaulted and for feeling victimized by that. And at the end of the episode, he says something to his best friend, Joey. And Joey is just like, you got to have sex. Like, what's your problem? And yes. Chandler says, you know, he cut his face falls and he kind of says, oh my gosh, why am I being such a girl? <laughs> and I feel like that moment is just such a great encapsulation of how men are taught to deal with consent. It's like this mythology that men are supposed to always want to have sex and no matter how they get it, they're supposed to want it and appreciate it. And if they don't, then there's something wrong with them. They're emasculated. Yeah. They're yeah. taught that they're not being like quote unquote real men. Yeah. Because if you're a guy, you're not supposed to have any emotions. You're just supposed to be this dumb jock that wants to, you know, pump everything in sight. Yeah. And so, and that's just absolutely ridiculous. As we know, men have a varied amount of emotions, every emotion that a woman would have because they're humans. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> They are. <laughs> and and maybe in our society, anger is more of an acceptable emotion for men than maybe um, vulnerability or other things like that. But for some men, I know guys that personally, you know, I have had ex-boyfriends and stuff that had a lot of intimacy issues and sex was almost more romantic for them, more intimate for them because um, if it was really special. And so that is something that to take away. And I also have a male friend who was sexually molested by an older um, relative, a victim of incest and sexual assault. And he was extremely humiliated about it because it was something that, oh, you're supposed to like it. You're supposed to enjoy it. He was very, very young. I believe he was a small child and he was um, inappropriately touched and, and fondled and other things like that. And I think she may have, I, I don't know the details, but that is taught, like you said, as what's wrong with you. You're supposed to like it. You're supposed to want it. And um, I know he definitely had a lot of um, identity issues around that. So male sexual assault is also very serious. Again, your book does focus mostly on women. But the fact that you mentioned that, I really appreciated that mm, because thank you. those victims are not 
um, as you said, there's a lot of joking around it. I know with the teacher scandal, there's been a lot of joking. Why, you know, why are these young boys upset? They're getting these hot teachers to have, you know, sex with them. And it's like, uh, that's not really the issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And one of the things that I was, I was trying to kind of point out in general in the book is that sexual assault isn't just a sort of, um, you know, the, the way a lot of survivors feel is like my sexual assault happened just to me. Like there's this feeling that, you know, I went through this experience and I am going to live with the shame and silence of that because, you know, I was targeted and I was victimized. And a lot of survivors often think like, and it was my fault in some way. Like we often just tend to go to that place. Um, And so one of the things I wanted to point out is that it's not just about these individual assault um, moments. It's really about what our culture is, how our culture teaches men that they're supposed to want sex all the time and pursue women for sex all the time and that women's job is to say yes or no. And, you know, women are really discouraged against connecting with our own desire and what we actually want. And so, you know, when we have men and women coming together in sexual experiences, it can get really confusing because we've just been taught like really kind of messed up things about what sex is and what consent is and what feelings are appropriate and not appropriate. And so I feel like we're all really confused. And a lot <laughs> of these issues Let, let's, talk, let's talk about a couple of those things because that is something that I really, really loved about the book. And you guys get it. Where are, is it available for listeners? Uh, it's available anywhere you get books. You know, okay. you can get it at Amazon, Amazon yeah. and Barnes and Noble and wherever. Yeah. So let's talk about that because there's a couple of things that you wrote about that really resonated with me. And I just absolutely loved the book. So thank you for sending me an advanced copy of it. And um, I do have a lot of authors on my show and a lot of them are amazing, but I genuinely loved your book for so many reasons. <laughs> so so good to hear. Thank let's you. talk about something that really resonated with me. And I feel like every guy needs to run and grab this book because I've had so <laughs> many issues with this. You give, I don't know how many pointers it is. I don't think it's numbered about cues for sec- for consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's basically, and you think it would be very simple, like, hey, she's turned on, hey, she's not into it. But as you talk about so in society, we're taught certain things. So I know a lot of guys who think, well, I couldn't have possibly raped her because she didn't say no, get yeah. off me, get off. You know, I, I think I don't want to say guys are dumb, <laughs> but you're we're kind of taught that, you know, unless you're a, a ba- big bad guy, you said evil monster hiding in the alleyway, ready to grab a girl with a gun and knife that guys, you know, I know men that I that, you know, they'll be telling me a story about a girl and I'm thinking, I don't know if that was consensual. Right. Oh, well, she was drunk and she was this and that. And and so you actually gave a list of very detailed cues of consent because the consent is not always clear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I I often think I've heard this story a couple of times from from men who, you know, they're sensitive men. They really care about this stuff. They want to do the right thing. And so they do workshops on consent and the consent workshops say, you know, what matters is whether she says yes or no. And if she says yes, go ahead. And if she says no, it's very focused on yes or yes no. Or no. Yes very or no. Yes or no. Focused on that. Yeah. yeah. And so these men tell me, you very know, bluntly. Like I, yeah. <laughs> so like I'm, I'm on a date and I ask her, can I put my hand on your arm? Can I take your shirt off? Can I whatever? And ultimately she gets frustrated and she says, oh my God, stop asking me questions and just have sex with me already. <laughs> and they're like, what? I'm so confused. Like this is the opposite of what I learned in my consent workshop. <laughs> and so I think, you know, part of the problem is that that kind of consent narrative is still based on the idea that 
men are the pursuers and women are the people who, the gatekeepers, the, the one who says either yes or no. Um, but consent is really something I think that must be shared between two people. It's kind of co-created or more people, you know, however many people <laughs> Two or more polyamorous more, orgies, more, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's include the polyamorous people here as well. Um, but it's something that is that is really created in the moment and it's something that involves a lot of paying attention because... Um, you know, especially because women have been, again, socialized to not have a connection with their own desire. Often if a man says to a woman, what do you want? She'll say, oh my gosh, I have no idea. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I've always been in a narrative of like just sort of putting up with whatever's happening and seeing if I like it or not. Some right? of the tips you give are, is she breathing heavily? Is she breathing? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is she breathing? Absolutely. Is her tail wagging? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, th I think so I call that listening with the body. And, yeah. um, and so what you know, what you're paying attention to is like, is she relaxed? You know, can yes. she, Does she feel tense? Is she or, like, <laughs> yeah, did she suddenly tense up and go silent? Is like, she clutching her pepper spray? Guys, that's <laughs> yes, a no. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And again, women have been conditioned to say yes to men, even when they are feel confused or aren't really sure what they want, or even when they fully want to say no. A lot of the time women are kind of afraid to do that. And so they might be saying, yes, this is fine. But if they're tensed up, um, let's, let's talk about that confusion because that's really important because consent is also a is something that can change so you Absolutely. can be making out with a guy really into it and then for whatever reason um you know say you know what you're going too fast too soon the passion took over or you realize you know what I'm not on the pill and I just want to wait a couple more dates and and so maybe the cues you're getting as a man are hey she's into it or making out we're half naked on the bed so consent I mean I don't want to say it's a tricky thing, but being really present, as you state, yeah. is very important. Yeah. And being present, I think, not only with your partner and how your partner is responding to what you're doing, but I think it's also really important to be present with what you feel and how your body is reacting to what's going on. And again, I think sometimes, you know, uh, this can happen to women too, but I think men especially can get kind of caught up in like how they're performing and whether or not she likes it and is this move cool enough or whatever. Um, but they're not actually in the moment with their own body feeling whether or not they're experiencing pleasure and whether or not their consent is still kind of being being present there. And again, I think of this uh, story that just sort of haunts me a little bit from this um man that I spoke to once about um, just sexuality in general and how he had learned to be sexual. And he talked about how he learned to be sexual from porn and so you know when he was in that not not necessarily the best idea not the best place <laughs> not the best school for love but a, a little um, extreme yeah yeah but that's you know a lot of young boys you know they have so many questions about sex they want to be really good at it so the obvious place to look is, is the internet porn yeah <laughs> which like nobody tells them this isn't sort of a realistic depiction of what sex is like for a lot of people um, but he said that he just watched this porn and he memorized several moves. And then the first few times he had sex, oh, yeah. he just did the moves. And he s and he the the way that he phrased it was, I don't think I I don't think I felt anything those first few uh, times. That's like I just awful. wasn't there. It is. It makes me feel really sad. And then you know it took him kind of meeting a woman who was like, Hey, slow down. Like, like calm down. Like, you don't just need to drill uh, yeah. jackhammer <laughs> yeah, me. Exactly. Like <laughs> what are you doing? Like let's talk about this. Um, and then and then he kind of learned to to enjoy sex from there and like you know that he learned from a human being rather than just from porn but I think that is what happens a lot of the time is this focus on like oh I'm supposed to perform this way and this is what it's supposed to look like and you know we have to do this act or else it doesn't count or whatever um, and that's not being present with the 
person in front of you. That's not really fully experiencing like, is this person with me? Am I with this person? Does my body like this? You know, and sort of dealing also with those mixed signals of like, I really want to have sex right now, but I'm not on the pill and I want to wait or whatever. Like you can have your own mixed signals within yourself. And so just being able to. That's very important. Yeah. So that's very important to understand with consent, male or female is you may have your own mixed signals. And so it's very important to be present with yourself. And that's very important. Now, I want to address something that you just mentioned that also had me in giggles a little bit. I know your book is very serious, but also very funny. Um, I like to joke that it's the most fun book about sexual assault you'll ever read. It is. It's a very fun book. And I, I think actually, um, even though the main focus is sexual assault, I, I actually think, Julie, that you're selling yourself a little bit short by making it just about sexual assault because it's a life book. Mm-hmm. I really think it's a life book. So. Um, something that made me giggle really hard that you mentioned, you said, you know, this guy in the story you're just relating to me is that this, you know, this young kid, he didn't know anything. So he's watching porn. You talk about sex education and the lack of it and the mixed signals and the, and this is something that I really think is important because there is so much misinformation, even with the internet. You know, when I was growing up, the internet was AOL, you know, dial up. So we didn't have as myriad of information as we do now. But even with everything that there is on the internet and the kids having access to the internet these days makes me sound so old saying the kids having access to the internet, (laughs) but younger generations having Mm -hmm. access to the internet, there's still so much information and it's, and there's so much early shaming. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember asking my parents about sex or, or being with friends and asking, and the reaction is embarrassment, humiliation, shut up. You don't say those things. You don't talk about them out loud. And I remember having a friend whose parents were very open and very matter of fact about it. And there was no, because when you're a little kid and you're like, what's a penis or what's anal or what's a blowjob? And your parents immediately react and say, shut up. You don't say that. What is the message you're receiving? It's that it's bad. It's dirty. It's taboo. And so there's no real open conversation like, hey, honey, where did you hear that? And well, what do you think about it? And 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 that's something that I experienced growing up was it was very extreme. I would say the conversations about sexual education in my household were very extreme. It was either don't talk about it or um, with my with my parents, it was don't do it. Don't do it until you're married. Mm-hmm. And that's not a very practical um explanation (laughs) yeah not super useful yeah not super useful but not only that but that conversation around sex was I mean that kind of don't talk about it is very mechanical there's no conversation of love and sex there's no conversation of consent and sex relationship and sex so sex is not just this you know wham bam thank you ma'am a kid pops out it's this myriad as you talk about feelings understanding your feelings understanding your emotions and it actually makes me really sad in hindsight now because it you know my parents are divorced and 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 looking back I don't think that they have a healthy conversation around sex so Mm -hmm. how could they pass it on to their kids so this is I mean there's so much loaded in what you mentioned Yeah. And I think that when we're teaching kids about sex in a more sex positive way, we can teach them this really fundamental lesson that I really wish I'd had a lot younger, which is that you are the person that decides what happens to your body sexually. Your sexuality belongs to you. It's precious and, you know, it's tender and it requires some care. Um, And, you know, if someone 
is coming into your space in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable, you have the right to say, no, I don't want that. Um, and if you do have that gut feeling that, you know, a boundary is being crossed, then it's being crossed. So, you know, stop that, that situation or get out of there as, as quickly as you can or whatever it might be. And I think when all we learn is like sex is bad until you're married or, you know, sex is this dangerous thing or like masturbation is horrible, we have no opportunity to get to know our own sexual selves and really own that as a precious part of ourselves that we need to protect and that we can really choose to share that with people in a way that is like loving and beautiful and life affirming um, and can be totally safe. But we just don't learn about safety if we don't learn about it at all, right? Yes. And I think that porn is actually a bad way for kids to learn about it because as you said, it's a fantasy. Sometimes it can be very extreme. Um, you know, there are studies about um, watching too much pornography and, and violence and, and sexual assault being linked. And so I think it's parents' jobs and aunts and uncles and family members to have these open conversations in a very matter-of-fact way, not, there's so much shame yeah. around sexuality. And I think that causes some of this assault. Yeah. Because there's such a lack of understanding, not just with consent, but like you said, with our physical bodies, with our boundaries, with our yeah. pleasure circles. And I, I really love that you said that um, pleasure is is a form of radical... I, I'm, I'm totally misquoting you. Help me out. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, pleasure is a form of, of rebellion. Rebellion, yeah, because yeah. you're you're really taking back your physical autonomy. And there is this storyline that your body doesn't really belong to you. You know, um, I think especially for women. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, for some women, porn is a really useful uh, aid to pleasure. Um, but it kind of depends on what it is and where they're getting it. Like, um, you know, Tumblr shut down their. Um, there was sort of a, a feminist porn trend that you could find on, on Tumblr that, that was very popular for a while. And you could get like, you could get There's queer. all sorts of stuff on Tumblr. <laughs> there's, uh, yeah, there's lots of stuff on Tumblr. They've shut it all down now, which I think is... Um, Are, is there no more pornography on Tumblr? Yeah, they shut it all down. Like it was just one of those sort of acts to try to try to protect people from, um, you know, sexual violation and things like that on the internet, they which had, is fair. They had a lot of really good... Um, I'm kind of into like fantasy stuff. They had a lot of really good fantasy stuff on there. Yeah. Like fantasy yeah. threats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. That were safe and not as like hardcore as yeah, like. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, like I, I, I talk a little bit about porn in the book and just like my early days of sort of trying to figure out like, what is this and, and what is porn and how do I find it? And like, you know, when I was looking uh, on the internet in those early days, you're just kind of like, you type in porn and like see what comes up. And it's terrifying, some of this stuff. It's incredibly violent. And, you know, we live in a culture that violence is, is almost um, normal, right? Like we grow up watching these TV shows that are just shockingly violent and we don't protect our kids from that. And yet you rarely see consensual loving sex oh, on TV Thank you or for mentioning movies. that. I, yeah. <laughs> I was working a day job years ago and this, I worked with a mom and she said that, you know, she was like, oh, you know, they can't watch X and Y movie because there's sex in it. Yet she would let them watch these insanely violent movies. Yeah. And I mentioned that to her and she's like, oh, well, there's nothing bad in it. They know it's pretend. And right. I'm thinking, <laughs> so you're not open to showing, you know, something that's very natural and human, yet you want your kids to see murder, you know, death, violence, shoot, heads exploding. Yeah. It just didn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you're seeing all this sort of cartoonish violence and getting desensitized to that, but you're not having any exposure to consensual sex, and then you go type in porn in the internet, um, you're going to see violent sex. And that's kind of what you're going to learn about about what sex is, that you're going to really associate it with violence, which it doesn't have to be. But I think a lot of people in this culture 
you know, we do have that association with sex and violence. And of course, that that creates a problem for us. And also, I think, um, you know, I actually one of my really, really great friends is a was a producer on a porn documentary on Showtime. And they they talk about um, the extreme nature of sex and internet pornography because of the fact that there's such a flooded it's kind of like how news has gone more to clickbait is that there's such a flood of free content online that it's become more and more extreme just to get clicks to get views and so that obviously is not what's normal and happens in the bedroom i am uh sex positive and i'm i'm pro-pornography as a way for women to empower empower themselves and I've had several adult film actresses on the podcast but I do think that um, there is a little bit as a porn connoisseur and consumer myself it has gotten really extreme Mm -hmm. I mean sometimes I'll be looking at something and they recommend things or other clicks will come up and I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I've seen stuff before. I'm like, oh, my God, that didn't turn me on. That was, like, disgusting. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that uh, was, yeah. like, makes me want to barf. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, what I learned about um, specifically the female sexual response in the research that I was doing for the book. And, you know, everyone is different. And I don't want to be too sort of gender binary about it. But just what I learned from the, the perspective of the research that I was looking at um, for women, it's it's quite easy for the sexual inhibition system to turn on. So that's that it's kind of like the, the, um, the, the gate comes down, right? It's sort of like, (laughs) nope, nothing's going to happen here. And often what happens physically to us is like our pelvic floor, which is like that little net of muscles that surrounds our genitals just contracts right up. And we're going to feel like, nope, I don't want to have sex right now. And so, you know, when we're watching porn in that way, where we're kind of in this place where, the right kinds of porn, like whatever it is that makes us feel turned on and and safe and comfortable, that's going to help us relax. That's going to sort of get the juices flowing. Like it's going to get us more into the mood. And some women need that. And that's awesome. And that's wonderful. And if that's pleasurable for you, that's great. But then even in that context, like you might be watching something and then an image pops up that is recommending anything with needles, anything (laughs) with like weird needles and like be, I saw one thing and it was like, I, I, if you're into this, more power to you, but like a pierced nipple or so I like gag. I'm like, right. Oh God, my nipple yeah, hurts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're seeing sort of unfiltered images in that way, like it can be really easy to sort of like get turned on and then immediately turned off again, just because it's so kind of, well, unfiltered, I guess is the word for it. And everybody's so different too. Like it really depends Someone might on, be turned on by it, but not me. Yeah, sorry. absolutely. Like, of course. And, be, you know, people can be turned on all, all by all kinds of things. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. Um, but it's just a question of like, for women, we, a lot of, and especially if you've had assault or any other kind of trauma in your life, your stress system is a little more sensitive. So it's going to be yes. a little bit faster for you to react in a way of like, oh no, I'm shutting down. I, you know, I'm in danger. Um, and so, you know, for me, I find porn is just something that like, I don't really engage in it that often for that specific reason. Cause I feel like it's just going to be so easy for something scary to come. Oh my up. God. So much scary stuff. Um, so you did talk about, um, a, a lot of reclaiming. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking more about, you know, light stuff, but it is a book about a sexual, sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways of getting over it, you mentioned in a couple of the chapters about reclaiming not only reclaiming your story, reclaiming your body, mm-hmm. reclaiming your feelings, feeling your feelings. And that is the part that is related to sexual assault, but also I think related to anyone, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are, are sexually shut down from what we were just discussing where 
they don't really there's such a muddled conversation around sex I think you don't have to be assaulted to not be in touch with your feelings yeah sadly yeah (laughs) sadly (laughs) (laughs) absolutely absolutely and you know one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is how I often want to use the the phrase like I mean even the word recovering like it implies that there was something that you lost that you need to get back again right? Yes. But, you know, in my experience with my recovery and really what I think is possible for any survivor is that like, again, our culture teaches us violence. It teaches us to be shut off from our feelings. It teaches us not to connect with each other. And so whether you've been assaulted or not, this is our conditioning, right? And so I feel like for me, the recovery process is what taught me how to have really hot consensual sex, (laughs) and to feel really connected to my body and my feelings and to really develop this loving relationship with myself I didn't have any of that before Before. that's that's why I'm saying that it's more than a sexual assault book because someone being present with themselves knowing their boundaries this is not exclusive to sexual assault victims this is like an every person book and even when you talk about eating you know you're talking about there's a chapter about food you mentioned hey feel your food chew digest take your time you know the the uh for the listeners the preface of it or the premise of it excuse me was you're saying that some people can be affected bodily image uh anorexia bulimia body image issues after assault and so then you go into that i food and sex are very related very related very related yeah Um, so I had anorexia when I was a teen and I was uh, sexually assaulted many years later, but one of the ways my, my coping strategies kind of came up was through food restriction. So, um, you know, getting, Uh, dealing with the trauma, you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Getting anxious about food. And I kind of talk about how, like, you know, we learn from a very basic place that food and love are connected, right? Like even just when we're babies, when we cry, usually we get food and that usually... Or when you go home with your parents, they're like, eat, 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 right? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot of us have this association with like sharing food with our families or like, you know, eating around the table or whatever. If we're lucky, we have some nice, you know... um, uh, memories about food and, and family and some of us that we don't and like you know that can be part of what we learn about ourselves in this process as well um, but food is really it can be it was one of the ways that I kind of took the things that I was trying to learn which was things like consent boundaries pleasure feeling my feelings all of that stuff and food is a great place to practice all of that stuff because you know when you're listening to your own body cues of eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full that's kind of like practicing desire and aversion it's like I desire food and so I'm going to honor that desire and feed myself and when my body says no stop I'm honoring consent in a way and I'm saying okay my body is saying it doesn't want this anymore so I'm going to stop and that's a very difficult practice for a lot of us I don't think that's necessarily something a lot of us are doing Um, but it's it can be a really beautiful process to do that and then when we sit down and slow down and really you know show some respect to our food we're practicing pleasure as well and we're kind of learning like how many of us just jam food down our mouths exactly and we're just rushing to eat to get to the next thing yeah you're paying for this food or you're buying this food whether at the grocery store or at a nice restaurant and you're shoving shoveling it in yeah. Yeah. with no pleasure or enjoyment yeah and it's literally about to become your body <laughs> like our bodies are made of the food we eat right like our bodies are made in relationship with these other beings that we eat like plant beings and animal beings and whatever it is 
Um, and so, yeah, sitting down and showing some some respect to that food and really noticing, like, not only does this taste good, but how does this food make me feel? Like, do I feel like lethargic and gross after I eat this? Or do I feel kind of like energized and good? And really paying attention to how we're in relationship with um, our environment through the food that we eat is a fascinating and really beautiful way to just develop self-love, I think. And, and we all could use more of that, I think. Yes. And it's so true what you said. It's so hard. And this is something I have struggled with, my husband has struggled with. And believe it or not, we have lost gobs of weight practicing this practice that you're talking about um, because we both come from a uh, blurred boundary food and love mm. families. Yeah. You know, every single time I go home, it's like every conversation with my mother is where do you want to go eat? What do you want to eat? What am I cooking? Eat more. You're too skinny. Eat more. And so I, that is a boundary that I've learned as an adult because I was stuffing myself because I was, this goes back to what you're saying about your body as your own. You know, I was being told eat, eat, eat. And because no boundary, no boundaries, yeah. because it was my mother's way of showing love, but not respecting my own body. My body was like, I'm full. Yeah, I'm done. You know, one of the things that my family loves doing is going to these buffets and my, my parents are just like, eat more, eat more, we're at a buffet and all you can eat. It's like, just because you're at an all you can eat buffet doesn't mean you have to eat you everything. Eat it all. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was a really profound thing that you talked about and, really does go hand in hand with not only sexuality and consent, but with understanding your body, which I think is very, very, very important. Yeah. And I think just learning to respect your own body's experience of the world. Like so many of us are just really living in our heads and um, we're not really that focused on how our bodies are responding to the world around us. And when we can practice uh, pleasure and consent and you know, eating when we're hungry and stopping when we're full, that really does help to teach us that how our bodies feel matters and that that we can bring that into every experience in our lives you know all of our relationships not only sexual but other relationships as well at work like does this feel right to me or is this something where I feel like someone's pushing my boundary and um, again most of us we're not really taught that super well in our first families and like our culture doesn't teach us that super well and so you know one of the 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 things that I talk about a lot in the book is that survivors have this opportunity to go through a re recovery practice and learn all that stuff for the first time and if you don't go through you know a traumatic experience where you have to go through a recovery process you may never have um that moment where you realize like oh something needs to change and I don't mean that to say like um in that cliched way of like everything happens for a reason as if it's a good thing to go through an assault it isn't I'm not saying that at all you're saying it's an opportunity but it's, it's but an opportunity yeah but you can take that opportunity to learn something about yourself and it's not an easy process but it's a really really rewarding one and you really can again it's not recovering something you had before it's regain it's it's like gaining something new that you have never had maybe in your life and then your life can be actually way better than it ever was before yeah and that was my experience there's this amazing quote nothing that happens to you um, can take away who you are. Yeah. So it's very important to know that just because someone, you feel like someone has taken away your power, it doesn't mean your power is gone. You just have to rediscover it. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that I think that's really important. And, and that goes into the next topic that you mentioned a lot about the romanticism of society, the codependency that's taught. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, I couldn't have resonated more. This is what I learned growing up. These kind of delusional, codependent, unhealthy, you know, even our definition of romance in society, as you mentioned, is completely unhealthy. What we're teaching kids with these Disney fairy tales and these, it's not a realistic, the woman is sort of like this just object. Yeah. 
that's being thrown about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and this leads to this behavior that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, women are taught a lot of really messed up things. And so are men. We're taught different things about um, a different messed up things. Different <laughs> messed up things. Yeah. Like we, we're both getting messed up messages. Um, but, you know, codependency is such an interesting one. Um, and that's something that I've thought about a lot in my own life as well. Um, and it's this kind of idea that, you know, we, we're not people in our own right. We don't have power in our own right, right. And we kind of require, you know, someone to rescue us or someone that we need to take care of so that they can need us. And, you know, all of these kind of relationship structures around, you know, rescuing the princess or, you know, the, the handsome prince coming in and then, you know, winning the prize of the, the, the sexuality the or the woman or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, like these these narratives are really about power. They're not about love. They're not about, um, you know, I talk a lot about love. I have a chapter on love right at the ver- very end. And um, I'm really trying to understand love between consenting adults as something where it means like I see you for who you really are, including your flaws, and I still um, honor you and want to give you the space to grow oh and God, change you're gonna make your me cry <laughs> you're gonna make me cry julie that is so beautiful if the entire world could understand that concept yeah you know there would be so much less divorce so much less fighting i feel like everyone i know who's divorced their divorces are caused by this power struggle that you talk yeah. about in the book this power struggle instead of seeing the person authentically as who they are it sounds like a lot of new age mumbo jumbo, but it's really not. But uh, before I go on, oh my God, you're going to make me cry. I just want to clarify and define something you said for the listeners who did not understand what you meant. So you said a lot of people live in their heads yeah, and we need to be more present. So for those of you who don't really understand what presence is, Julie does an amazing job in, in the, the various chapters of what she calls meditations. Mm-hmm. And she explains a little bit about being present. So being in your body feel tell me if I'm wrong or misquoting you feeling your feelings Mm -hmm. feeling your body really living and being in every aspect of you what are you feeling not just what you're thinking yeah am I am I defining this in a way that is is yeah absolutely reflective of what you wrote yeah yeah the way that I talk about mindfulness um because there's a lot of new age talk these days there's a lot of self-help talk and I think sometimes it can confuse people yeah for sure yeah yeah and mindfulness is a word that's really thrown around a lot um a lot (laughs) a lot yeah and so it's you know uh so the way I understand mindfulness is uh really a practice of number one being present in that way so you're kind of observing what's going on in your thoughts in your emotions in the physical sensations that you feel in your body and then the second piece of it is being compassionate to whatever that is. So, you know, a lot of us get into trouble where we'll say like, oh, you know, I, for example, like I, I still miss my ex-boyfriend even though it's been six months or whatever. And so, um, you know, we think like, oh, I shouldn't be missing that person. Like that's an inappropriate reaction and I should feel a different way. So I'm going to try to push myself to feel a different so way. So judging yourself judging instead of yourself, just letting yeah. what's co- happened yeah. coming up. Yeah. And so it, it, with mindfulness, you just say like, oh, I noticed that I, I'm still missing my, my ex and that's okay. That's just what's happening right now. Um, and I noticed that I'm judging myself about that. <laughs> and that's okay. That's a pattern that I have. And I'm working on that. And you're, it's just like a really compassionate way of observing what's going on in your body so that you can have choices. Like 
when we get into all that judgment and shame, it really shuts off our ability to make choices. Like that's where we really end up just acting out of like urge or acting out of reaction or acting out of trying to not feel the shame anymore. Um, but when we can really honestly show up to everything that's actually happening and keep telling ourselves again and again, like whatever I'm feeling on the inside is okay. Like the choices that I make in life, my behaviors, those things matter. And, you know, it's important what I choose around that. And you can make mistakes and you can do the wrong thing or whatever. And that's okay too. Like you learn from your mistakes and you move on. But when your relationship with yourself is really this capacity of being like, oh, I'm feeling a certain way. And I noticed that I wish I wasn't feeling that way, but I am. And that's okay. And so, you know, what can I do to support myself in this moment? Or, you know, what is my urge uh, in terms of like what I feel like doing? And is that really what I want to choose to do? Do I have other options? Like it's really... Um, bringing the mind and the body together into conversation with each other. Yeah. So that we can make choices that are, you know, the best choices that we can make in the moment. Not that we never make mistakes. <laughs> I think the problem is that we're taught not to feel our feelings and your feelings are there for a reason. Absolutely. They're trying to tell you something. Yeah. Whether it's, Hey, I'm lonely. Hey, I am angry. And you know, you, you have a whole, an entire section about anger and I, I think that that is very important, too, because when you're victimized, there's a lot of shame. And I feel like shame and guilt are the number one, at least in my experience, emotion. And it's OK to feel angry. Something bad has happened. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I talk about anger as the bodyguard of your boundaries. Right. Um, and the bodyguard of your desire as well. Um, and, you know, Anger has become such an important tool for me in my life. And it's something that I really didn't have much of a connection to before. Like it sort of took me a while to cultivate a place where I could feel angry. And I think that's because of, you know, that codependent tendency to like always want to please everybody and, you know, never rock the boat and never have any conflict or whatever. So my anger was very suppressed for a long time. Um, but now I recognize that like when anger arises for me, it's trying to tell me either a need is not being met or a boundary has been crossed. And so it's giving me some really useful information. And your again, body's like, hey, nah, nah, yeah. nah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's a fire alarm. It's a fire alarm going off in your body for sure. And so again, if you can do that mindfulness practice of like, oh, I notice I'm feeling angry. What's up? Yeah. Like rather than just kind of acting out with that and like yelling at someone or punching or whatever, a wall or, punching or whatever wall, people do. Yeah. Yeah. You can pause and ask yourself like, whoa, OK, what's going on here? What boundary is being crossed or what need is not being met? And, you know, there's a whole process that I talk about in the book that you can sort of do with anger. Um, but, you know, then you can make some choices. You can decide, like, do I want to communicate this boundary? You know, um, do I want to ask for this need to be met? Is there a way that I can meet my own need here? Like there are sort of all sorts of questions that you can ask yourself when you're able to bring your mind and your body both online at the same time. Yes. Um, very good information. Um, I also wanted to talk about um, you mentioned many times throughout the book because it is a sexual assault book about your um, assaulter not fitting the traditional stereotype mm -hmm. of an assaulter and I think that's very important to understand because I was also assaulted by someone that I could probably have physically taken on mm -hmm. but I went into fight or flight mm -hmm. um, which you also explain with very scientific detail the reptilian brain and everything right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I went into fight or flight and I I I reacted poorly obviously I was in a traumatic situation and you talk about your assaulter being sort of like this nerdy guy and explain that there's this stereotype that it has to be you know this overbearing jock or you know I the stereotype I I heard a lot with assault was you know some scary 
probably person of color hiding in an alleyway or mm-hmm. something. And I think that is a huge disservice, um, as you mentioned quite a bit, to assault survivors because I think that that stereotype contributes to this not believing of victims. Absolutely. You yeah, know, like like Joe, he seems like such a nice guy. He would yeah. never do that or, or you know, and and that's just not the case. That's not yeah. reality. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'll mention like one of the things that I've really struggled with in uh, writing the book and sort of putting the book out there and sharing it is this fear that I have that you know, the assault that I experienced isn't like, quote unquote, assaulty enough. You know? <laughs> um, because I'm it- so sorry to laugh, but I <laughs> totally relate and understand, you know, I don't want to belittle assault victims, but I think that may be more the norm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, the, the thing that I had to kind of keep reminding myself about is that you know, assaulty it's, enough. it's, <laughs> yeah. I think you've added a new word to the Webster's dictionary, <laughs> assaulty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, it's important that we understand that this, um, you know, person of color in an alleyway with a gun, violent assault, it happens. It, it does, does happen. It does. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but it's a myth that that's the only way that sexual assault happens. And something like 80 to 90% of the time, the assault is um, a acquaintance, husband, a boyfriend, a, a relative, friend, an acquaintance, someone at school, like, yes. you know, not someone that you would expect, that someone who doesn't fit that stereotype. And I know so many women who've been through something similar to, to what I went through. And so, you know, I really wanted to kind of say, like, you know what, if you have had an ex- a non-consensual sexual experience that felt traumatic to you, that is your experience. And you know, you will be affected by that however you were affected by it. And that's okay. And like, there's still a recovery process that you can go through through that. And, you know, it doesn't have to be this sort of big violent thing for it to have really affected you in that way. Um, And just to kind of go back to that uh, question of like, you know, he was kind of this nerdy guy that like, I probably could have physically fought off if I had been in that zone. Um, One of the things that I talk about in the book is um, tendon befriend, which is, um, a stress response that has been studied um, only quite recently. So fight or, fight or flight is, uh, you know, that kind of like, okay, I have to fight this person or I have to run away. Um, and uh, that stress response was only studied in men for a very, very long time. Um, and then so I think it's in 2000, Shelley Taylor started studying uh, how female mammals respond to stress. And she found this extra response called tendon befriend. And um, the idea is that, you know, if if a female mammal is pregnant or carrying a helpless child, she's not going to be able to run or fight very effectively. Um, And so what she might do is tend and befriend, which is like, number one, go and take care of that baby. And number two, try to find allies. So try to find friends who can protect you when you can't protect yourself. And so what often happens in these situations is that, you know, when the person who is assaulting you is someone you consider a friend, an ally, you know, um, a partner even, your tendency isn't going to be to fight them or run away. You're going to think, how can I please this person, placate, like, you know, make them feel better, take care of them so that they don't hurt me. And so a lot of the time in these assault situations, survivors look back and they're like, why didn't I fight? Like, why didn't I scream? Why didn't I, you know, run out of there? And the reason might have been that your body was trying to help you survive by trying to calm him down, trying to give him what he wanted, like, you know, dissociating so that you could just kind of get the experience over with. And that's more so what happened to me, I think, in, in that moment. And I've thought many times with shame, like, yes, why, why didn't, didn't I, I do this? Yeah. Why didn't I kick him off and say no? Yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> my situation wasn't exactly similar, but I did 
looking back, you know, that's, that's the dagger. And that's why it's important to be present and just move forward because your mind can go to all sorts of places. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, what I want to say to survivors who had that experience of like, and who asked themselves, why didn't I fight more? Why didn't I run? Um, the answer is because you were trying to survive. And guess what? You did survive. And so, you know, I'm trying to make the, the case that maybe it is powerful. Like, however you handled it was powerful. <laughs> Even if things went completely horribly wrong, you know, you got through that experience and however you got through it is okay. Like, there's no, you know, correct way to handle someone you, who's assaulting you, especially someone that you trust. Like, that's very confusing. It's very confusing. That's, yeah. it's very, very, very confusing. And I think it's important that you know that statistic that the majority of sexual assaults are relatives, friends, neighbors, people that we trust, you know, the people that I know that have been insulted, uncles, you know, other things like that, you know, fathers, unfortunately. So think of the mixed messages. And it's just very frustrating when I hear people, men and women who have not been insulted saying, well, why didn't you just do this? Or why, you know, why... I don't believe this woman because she could have just kicked him off. Yeah. That's, it's not, unfortunately, I wish it was that simple. Yeah. <laughs> that would solve a lot of problems. Yeah. But human beings were a little bit more complex than that. Um, I did have issue. Uh, you talked about forgiveness and I thought it was an amazing chapter, but um, I did have issue, not with something that you said, but it did trigger me mm. quite a bit because forgiveness is something that's really tough and Mm -hmm. it's something that I've had to work with forgiving myself and also my assaulter as well but I guess the unfairness of it that something was done to us and now we have to do the emotional Mm -hmm. work of their forgiveness (laughs) you know there was just this story on NPR um about or excuse me KPFK or one of the independent radio stations that I listened to about apologies and how powerful it is when sexual assault victims are apologized Mm. to and how empowering it is and healing, not just for the victim, but for the uh, attacker Mm -hmm. to the attacker can feel because, you know, when we do these bad things in our lives, attack others, assault others, betray trust as victims, we do feel, well, you know, how did, how could they get away with this? How could they take this from me? How could they do this from me? Even though we talked about, they didn't really take anything, but there is uh, and and this happens when you work on empathizing with your attacker they pay a price too an emotional price whether they know it or not mm-hmm. there is a guilt that's associated subconscious uh there's a tab that they kind of have to pay yeah it, but it still makes me angry it still makes me angry that we have to do the work forgiving ourselves and forgiving them when i mean i'm not saying we're innocent you know babes you know, not, uh, crystal clear from the the fallen white snow, but we, why do we have to do the work? I don't know. It just makes me mad. It's, it's <laughs> I agree with what you said, but it, it makes me infuriated. It's, Back to the anger. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's infuriating. It's infuriating. And like, you know, I, I think about how dating is such a complex thing that we have to do. And I think about how many women like, you know, go through this recovery process. They learn about consent. They, carry their pepper spray they try to find ways to protect themselves and like it's dating like we shouldn't (laughs) we shouldn't be like like preparing for battle when we go on a date like and you know if we choose the wrong guy or you know we don't listen to our gut one time like why should we have to pay the rest of our lives have to pay the rest of our lives for that and it is totally infuriating and you know there's um I'm like why do I have to forgive him and we don't (laughs) honestly we don't have to we don't have to we never have to and I think that's something about forgiveness that's really important to say is that like my definition of forgiveness is not 
letting the person back in. It doesn't mean spending time with them. You don't even have to communicate to them that you've forgiven them. Um, but for me, forgiveness is more of a process of seeing the other person as a flawed human being, um, just like you, and that experience no longer having power over your day-to-day -day life. I agree with you, but I do think that we need to forgiveness because I think that I, th I do think we need to forgive them because forgiveness is not for the attacker. The forgiveness is for you. Exactly. Yeah. And so unfortunately, I think we do need to forgive them because otherwise you hold that power yeah. in their arms yeah, and absolutely. the anger and the resentment. So I'm yeah. saying that we, I, I agree with you on that, but I just don't, why do I have to? Yeah, <laughs> why do yeah, I have to do it. all this yeah, hard yeah. inner and work? I mean, and I mean, I think I think part of what I'm saying too is like you can't rush that. Like you can't just say to yourself like, "Oh, I've forgiven, forgiven this person," because you may not have. Like it's something that needs to happen over time in your body, and it's a difficult process. Um, and you know, the metaphor that I talk about in the book is um, this great image I came across in um, a novel called Birdie by Tracy Lindbergh, and it's this image of a an owl coming home. And discovering that a wolf has peed all over her home. Yes, yeah, so you talked about the, the wolf with his <laughs> yeah. wolf peed in my house. <laughs> what do you do when a wolf has peed all over your house? Yeah. And so the owl in the story never really goes home. Like she just kind of flies around. She keeps going and going, like just trying to find a place to land. Um, and so, you know, when we've experienced an assault, it's like somebody's peed on our home. And like, I can't get this smell out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so we don't want to deal with it. And so we keep going and going. And that can look like addictions. It can look like getting really busy. It can look like avoiding our feelings. Like it's all this stuff that we do to, to get through the day. And that lasts as long as it needs to last. But at some point, someone has to clean up the wolf pee. And who has to clean it up? We Me. do. <laughs> <laughs> and like, yeah, it would be great if the perpetrators, like, uh, unfortunately, perpetrators rarely apologize. They like, do. And that's, it's, it's, this is what the story was about. And it was about women writing their own apology letters right. as if they were the perpetrator to help them heal. Right. It's yeah. a very positive yeah. story. Yeah, absolutely. And that's just another piece of work that we have to do for ourselves. And like, it is really infuriating. Because, it's like, why do I have to do yeah, this? <laughs> yeah, because like the only person that can do that work is you. And so we avoid it for a long time because it's really unpleasant work. But there's a real, I mean, you know, that's what the book, the book is that process. It's just like, how do I clean this up? And how do I make my home better than it ever was before? And it's so rewarding. How like, do I clean up this gosh darn wolf pee? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's tough, but like we can do it. There are lots of tools that we have to do it and and things can be better on the other side. But I agree with you. It's totally in enraging. It totally triggered me reading that chapter. I'm like, I agree with her, but why? Why do I have to do this? Yeah. <laughs> it's just because nobody else can. And like that really sucks. And well, and also it's for your own healing. Yeah. But it's just irritating that someone else has put their um you know, I I did a an empathy workshop and there was a a gentleman in there who had assaulted someone sexually and one of um, the exercises in the class which was amazing was for people in the class who had been assaulted to hear what he had to say mm -hmm. and learn to empathize with him mm -hmm. and let me tell you it was very very hard uh -huh. um, he did apologize to openly to all us victims and say that when he did it he was young and he really didn't know what he was doing and he felt he, he said that he did feel guilt about it every single day of his life and mm -hmm. that he um, I think he had um, assaulted a cousin, a younger cousin or mm -hmm. something. And he, he basically said, Hey, I was 14. I was horny and I really didn't know what I was doing. And I regret it. I, I think, I think about it every single day of my yeah. life. So it was um, an amazing opportunity to have empathy for an assaulter, but it was really hard, really hard. I imagine. Really, yeah. really, really hard, especially for the multiple sexual assault victims in the workshop that I took. But it is 
very empowering to take that power back and say, you know, you don't have this over me. Yeah. And I think one, one thing that I, I want to say about it too, is that like, even, even though we may be the, you know, like I'm the only person who can really clean up that wolf pee, I don't have to do it alone. <laughs> I, think it's, I think that's really important to, to acknowledge yeah. is like, and actually I can't do it alone. I think it's really important to acknowledge that trauma is not something that can be resolved in isolation. Um, and so, you know, that can look like a lot of different things. Like I've had plenty of therapy. Like I found that, uh, groups for sexual assault survivors were so, so helpful. Just being with other people who had in been a safe space it, in a safe space for sure. Like just being able to talk to my friends about it, you know, um, and, and, and I mean, you know, whatever works for you, like I'm a very body focused person, like I'm a yoga teacher. And so like doing, you know, body based practices, uh, massage therapy, like even energy healers, I, you know, I, I find that that sort of stuff can be can be really great, like whatever works for you, but you don't have to do it alone. And I think that, you know, when you can have an experience of being with a person, you know, maybe not necessarily a perpetrator, um, but even just like, you know, for me, I think having loving relationships with men has been really healing for me. Like yes. just with, with the, the friends that I have and like the way that they talk about their experiences with this stuff. And, um, you know, some of the, the, uh, stuff about men, uh, men's experiences with this stuff I got through, um, there's a group in Vancouver called Manology that's headed by um, a guy named David Hatfield and he's amazing and it's just this beautiful group of men that get together and they just really honestly talk about this stuff and I've had the privilege to be able to witness that and be involved in in some different s circumstances and so I think that was really healing for me as well just like being around men in a way where I could really see them as people and I could see the ways that you know, not that these men necessarily were perpetrators, but I could see the way that our culture teaches men to be perpetrators. Like it's kind of, you know, they get sort of pushed. With the movies and the yeah. culture and the society. Yeah, yeah, yeah they get pushed into this. And so you can sort of start to see how like, oh, I can kind of see how this this might happen and someone might not have meant to, to hurt me. And so I think that, you know, that, that aspect of things, it's like, you know, they may not realize that they're helping me to clean up the wolf bee, but they are. They are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and really you can't do it alone. So like if anyone listening is having that sense of just like, Oh shit, I have to go through this huge process of dealing with this all alone. Like, no, 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 you can get so much help. And in fact, you need it. Don't try to do it all by yes. yourself. Yes. Let's talk about the final chapter, love, self-love, love. It's amazing. It's beautiful. You, you kind of tie it back with um, the pleasure with the beautiful love is an act of rebellion. Self-love yeah. is an act of rebellion. And it is because, you know, there's so many things telling us to not, I mean, throughout the book, not listen to ourselves, not listen to our bodies, not listen. So really hearing yourself looking in the mirror and saying I see you I see who you are with all of your flaws to quote yourself and and treating that person as a goddess or yeah. a god is really an amazing act yeah absolutely yeah and um you know there's a there are a couple of definitions that I have for love in that chapter and one of them is from um I think it's M. Scott Peck who, who said it first but I might be mixing it up because Bell Hooks talks about it as well um, but it's it's basically this def definition that says like love is um, supporting uh, another's spiritual growth. And so I kind of talk about it as like if you're going to love someone, you have to love both yourself and also the other person and support your own growth as well as the other person's growth. And so, you know, true love between two people, um, I think of as something where you are taking care of yourself. You're dealing with your own crap and <laughs> nonsense and doing your best to heal in your own way and kind of, you know, 
healing, whatever that looks like for you. And you're also allowing your other person to do that. And I think a lot of the time in our culture, the way we love, we talked a little bit before about how love is so wrapped up with dynamics of power. Um, but it's often about what role do you play in my life? You know, what are my expectations of how you're supposed to show up to this? And, you know, especially in uh, heterosexual love relationships, that can look like, you know, I expect you to be my provider. I expect you to pay for things or whatever. I, and, um, you know, or I expect you to be like sexually available to me or whatever it is. And so when we are growing as human beings that grow and evolve and want to learn things there are times when we might change and that can often threaten our partner because they say oh no you have to stay exactly as you are because you're fulfilling this role for me mm. and so you know it takes a real act of courage to be able to let your closest people change um, and allow them to just be whoever they are without having to fulfill some specific role for you and I think so there's a fear too that you're, you're going to outgrow me Absolutely. You're yeah. going to outgrow me. You're going to be better than me. And then you're going to leave me. Absolutely. Yeah. And that comes from a lot. Of, um, you mentioned a lot of the book about spirituality and you tie it to spirituality. And I think yeah. that's very important because that is another aspect, the physical, the mental, the emotional and the spiritual. Yeah. And so you, you tie drive to spirituality, sexuality to yeah. spirituality. And I think that's very important because Really, in our society, we're so compartmentalized. And I think what you're asking for is this holistic, um, I don't know how to describe it, but almost just joining your your personalities, <laughs> your, your aspects <laughs> mm -hmm. into one to really understand your whole body, heart, soul, mind, spirit, everything. Yeah. And so that's the part of the book that I think is beyond sexual assault. This is, a, I think, a, a great self-help book for anyone. Yeah. And I think men should uh read this book <laughs> yeah, I, I really hope they do I really hope they do I was thinking of them as I was writing it and you know it's it's definitely a little bit more targeted at women but there's a lot of stuff in there that I really hope some men can can read and get something out of as well because I think there's also lots of information in that out uh, in the book that you know men really want to know I think that there are a I lot think of, so yeah, too I think about women about sexuality yeah, yeah. about consent I, yeah. I think that there is a lot of stuff yeah. in there yeah men want to know this stuff <clears throat> men want to do better like there are a lot of men out there who are you know experiencing the kind of me too thing and they're thinking like how, what is my role here? Like, how, do, how should I be involved in this? What does it mean to be sexual with a woman? Like, you know, if I've only ever learned things from porn, like, what am I missing here? Like, in my experience, the men that I know, they really want to do better. They're just not getting any information about it, um, you know, and so well, they I will get some from my book. I think there was this awful statistic that um, the majority of sexual assaults are perpetrated by 10% of the male population. So, for example, one man assaults multiple women. Right. So that means that 90% of the male population are totally awesome guys. Yeah. And that's awesome. Yeah. And and so they they are wanting to help and contribute. You know, I know so many amazing guys that when they hear about these assaults, it just infuriates them yeah. because they're, you know, the good guys. And they they are like, I would never do that to a woman. And, I, and how can I help and contribute, like you said? Yeah, and I think there's sometimes a terror for those good guys that what if they have, you know? And like w with a lot of the conversations that are coming out now, we're starting to get a more nuanced sense of what consent is and how it's not always a stranger raping someone in an alley. 
um, it can be a lot subtler than that. And so I think s for some of these guys listening to that stuff there, they have this terror that like, did I do I something? something? <laughs> and the thing is like, maybe you have, and let's deal with that. Like it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean you're evil. Um, it just means you've had some bad conditioning and like, let's learn about what that is and like how to do better in the future and kind of take the shame out of it a little bit. Yeah. And you can always apologize and be part of the wolf pee cleaning process. <laughs> yes. The wolf pee te cleaning you, team. And, <laughs> yeah. and it, I, I believe that that would be insanely healing. Yeah. for a woman that may have um, maybe not been assaulted, but maybe some boundaries were crossed. Yeah. That that could be a very healing experience for her and you. Yeah. If you're a guy that has question marks yeah. <laughs> flying over his head, read yeah. her book. She has all the cues listed. <laughs> um, we got to wrap up, but um, one more time for the listeners, Julie Peters, want eight steps to recovering desire, passion, pleasure after sexual assault. Again, I think, I think the title a little bit is holding her small because this is a self-help <laughs> book for anyone, men, women, Again, you don't have to be sexually assaulted to learn a lot from this amazing book on Amazon. Where else? Oh, yeah. You can get it online pretty much anywhere. Barnes & Noble. You can get it from the publisher Mango. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it should be pretty easy to find. And do you have a website, Julie? Uh, yes, you can check out my website, jcpeters.ca, and learn more about all the various things that I do. Okay, so she's Canadian, if you guys couldn't tell by the slight, <laughs> very slight Canadian accent. So, um uh, this has been Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. Thank you so much, Julie, for coming and joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Guys, go check out her book. We will have all of the links and everything available on outoftheboxpodcast.com. Guys, go on Anchor. Go on Anchor right now and subscribe to the podcast. Follow the podcast. If you want to support us, we take uh, Bitcoin, Litecoin, alternative currency, PayPal, Venmo, whatever you want to send us. And as always, we're on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud, wherever you find your podcast. Leave a positive comment on iTunes if you love the podcast. Leave a positive comment. Rate us. If you hated the podcast, that's fine. Leave a negative comment. Give us horrible stars. Doesn't matter. Rating the podcast is the number one way new listeners find out about the podcast. And we really love you guys. This has been Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran.